Let's pray and ask for God's help as we open his word together. Father, we take the promises of your word with joy and confidence, with hope and expectation. And you have recorded for us, this is your word that those who've never been told of Christ will see, that those who've never heard will understand. And that promise is hopeful for us, not simply because you have entrusted the word of truth, the gospel to us to give it, but that you have taken up your part, and we ask you to do it here in this place today, that you would give sight of a spiritual kind to those who've never seen, and understanding of a spiritual kind to those who've never really understood. And we pray this with the great joy, uh, again, from your word, that as we pray to you, the one who is able to strengthen us according to your gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed to people like us through the prophetic writings, by your power you are making known to all nations this gospel of Jesus Christ. So to you, the only wise God, we give glory and pray that it would continue forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's good seeing you again and good seeing some guests here. Some of you are here for the first time. We welcome you. I'm Danny Brooks, one of the pastors. Uh, Matt Parker uh, was uh, leading us through some of the preliminary uh, portions. Kevin Inafuku is one of our pastors and leading worship, uh, but he's out of here in a couple of weeks, which we'll say a little more about that. That's a sad thing for some of us, all of us who know him. I said it like some might not be saddened about that. So <laughs> sorry, Kevin and Misty. Um, but we're also excited because of what compels them to go. It's the same gospel message that we are engaged with this morning. And then Daniel Kaminsky has uh, been around. Are you in there? Oh, there he is. Yep. Seated in the row right next to uh, his daughter Kaya and wife Kelly and son Kip. So the four of us have the privilege of, of serving in this place together, and it is with great joy uh, that we're here. And we're glad you're here this morning, so welcome to all of you. Um, before we open our Bibles together, just another little touch of um, humor. This coronavirus chaos manifests itself in many different ways, and this is what happened when you leave your children alone with markers unsupervised. Any of you experienced anything like this in your household? You have new artwork on your walls that you did not purchase or plan for? Anybody want to confess or admit that? Here's a great one. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, I saw that this week and I just thought, oh boy, it's just golden. We need, we need a little humor from time to time, don't we? Just to put all this in perspective. It, no doubt it's a serious and significant moment in human history, really. And I know there's such diversity of opinions even about what's really going on and, and, and who knows. God knows all things. That's why we set our hearts on him and follow him. And I'm so thankful for the word that he has given us. And we're going to go to a portion of that, as you can see from Mark 14. If you're using one of the Bibles from the uh, seat rack in front of you, or you grabbed one of the copies on, on your way in, you'll find Mark 14 on page 851. Um, Mark is the second gospel in the New Testament, and there are four written by Matthew, who was an actual disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark, who apparently was a very young man and a follower, uh, but later uh, came to the point where the Holy Spirit led him and inspired him to write the second gospel, and we've been studying it for a number of months now. And then the gospel according to Luke, who was a physician who accompanied Paul and had a very prominent uh, place in early that first century as the church was being launched, and he took it upon himself to gather a number of eyewitness testimonies and, and facts that had been recorded or preserved about the life of Christ, and he included them in his gospel. And then, of course, the gospel of John, who also was a disciple. So four gospels, and this is the second one included in the New Testament. Now, I'd like to begin... Uh, reading here in just a moment, but before I do, I want to kind of give you some context so you can understand a little bit about the, the significance of, of this moment as Jesus is now under arrest, being tried, 
and prosecuted, and the cross looms uh, just hours ahead of him. I want you to think in terms of a little continuum here. Religion without Christ, and, and this would be true of religions of all kinds, but it tends to produce two different extremes. And on the one end of the spectrum, the, the right side of the screen would be self-righteousness. Uh, and at the opposite end would be despair or self-loathing. That's where religion without Jesus Christ will inevitably lead you in, in one of those two places. By self-righteousness, I mean that moral self-confidence and even superiority that rises from a personal satisfaction in one's own achievements. So because the religion says here are the rules, these are the requirements, these are the standards, and if you have enough energy and creativity and strength to to begin hitting those targets, you begin to develop this sense of self-confidence like I'm, I'm doing fine. And that often translates into a spirit of superiority. I'm fine, what's the problem with the rest of you? I can keep the, the, the rules. How come you can't? I'm committed fully. Why aren't my family members? Why aren't my neighbors? At the other end of the spectrum is self-loathing. And by that I refer to a sense of, of moral failure and the frustration that just grows out of that. It, it grows out of a continual sense of I'm always coming short. I'm never meeting the, the standards or expectations or the rules of this particular religion. And on top of that, I find myself continually judged by others. And it really puts you kind of as that picture would, would show in a, in a dark place. You hate yourself. You hate the community that you're a part of. You, you hate the oppression that you continually live under. And I've heard a number of people say over and over through the years, things like this, I feel like nothing I ever do is good enough. Well, that's what religion without a savior produces. We're going to focus today on the right side of this continuum and see how self-righteousness can ultimately manifest itself in such an ugly and unthinkable way. But before we sit in judgment on the characters in this particular portion of the gospel who are self-righteous, let's guard our hearts against thinking that we're above it or outside of it or it's not us, it's somebody else that we're dealing with because self-righteousness, as we've all seen it, both in our own hearts and in our neighborhoods, fosters, as one author writes, the sinful human illusions of sinlessness, sufficiency, and freedom. It feels safe and secure, but that safety and security that comes through this kind of religious commitment is nothing more than an illusion. And when we begin to think things like this, you know, I'm, I'm actually a really good person. Or at least I'm working really hard at it, and compared to a lot of other people, I'm a good person. We're in trouble. Or sometimes our self-righteousness manifested in in thinking things like this. You know, I'm not going to let anyone else tell me how to live my life. Ooh, careful. You're in trouble. You may not know it yet, but you're in trouble. You know, what's interesting is that this kind of self-righteousness is manifesting itself right now. There's a term that I'm hearing more and more at this particular moment in our own nation's history. It's the term confirmation bias. Any of you encountered that? Concerned about it? It's another person's problem, right? I mean... I mean, nobody here would be guilty of confirmation bias. If you're not familiar with that term, it, it speaks of the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information that confirms or supports one's prior personal beliefs or values. It's a type of cognitive bias. People display this bias when they gather or remember information selectively and when they interpret it in a biased way. For example, this article I, I, I read goes on to say, a person may cherry-pick empirical evidence or data that supports one's belief, ignoring the remainder of the data that is not supportive. The effect is strongest for desired outcomes, for emotionally charged issues, and for deeply entrenched beliefs. So, for instance, if you're politically conservative, you tend to read all the headlines of what's going on in Washington, around the world, the coronavirus issue, from a conservative bent. 
And if you're progressive or liberal in your politics, you tend to, to read all the information and interpret that from that bent. Nobody enters the, the news media or social media realm today without their biases. But if you're not willing to examine the truth as it presents itself, you will continually conclude that what you already believed is what they're saying. Now, this kind of bias manifests itself in religious circles all the time. And there's a form of religious confirmation bias running throughout the world today that wants to impose its own beliefs and values on Jesus rather than... So, so it looks like this. So here's Jesus and, and these individuals or religious groups come to him and impose what they already believe or think is true on him. And so, of course, Jesus fits. But what Jesus really demands from us is that we submit ourselves to him, all of our beliefs and values, and we let him be king, we let him be judge, we let him be the one who assesses the reality, the truth, the value of all that we are. That's a scary position. Because it may, in fact, mean the destruction of your world or your worldview as you know it and a, a rebuilding of it or a transformation of it. Now, as we read and study this particular section, again, I want to guard against a self-righteous uh, condemnation of the self-righteous ones here. So I'm going to ask that each of us prayerfully uh, engage with the text and, and trying to capture some of that. Let the prayer of your heart be something simply like this. Lord God, am I living in the reality of your truth or am I living in a religious world of, of my own making, of my own self-righteousness? imposing my ideas on Jesus specifically and upon your plan for my life. So if your Bibles aren't open, would you go to Mark 14 with me? Look at verse 53. Again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided here, you'll find us on page 851, and this portion will be on the screen as well. And they led Jesus to the high priest, that is, those who had just arrested him in the garden. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. We covered this last week. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. How did it come to this? How could it be that the Christ, who not only taught truth and proclaimed the, the word of God in power, in, in practicality, in great love and compassion for his hearers from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, who worked miracles, healing all kinds of disabilities, even raising some people from the dead, could be brought into a, a setting like this and condemned and sentenced to, to die. But we need to look, first of all, at who is prosecuting Jesus. And verse 55 tells us the whole council or the Sanhedrin. Now, let me just give you an idea of, of who's there. It, it doesn't make quite as much uh, impact on us to think of them when, I mean, you can read, yes, the high priest was there, that was Caiaphas, and, and he was a powerful man. And here's a little side note. When most high priests served an average of four years in that particular era, Caiaphas served 19 years. That'll show you how powerful, how skillful, probably how savvy he was. 
He's there, and he's the one who is leading this trial. Along with him, there would have been other high priests. Many of them had served previously in that position. Annas, his father-in-law, is, is among them. In addition to the, the, the chief priests who were with Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, the, the testimony speaks of the elders, and they represented the most influential lay families in Jerusalem. We believe that many of them were very wealthy landowners. So the chief priests and the elders accompany the high priest, and they constitute the ruling class in Jerusalem. The third group that is mentioned in the Gospels is the representatives of the scribes. Remember, these are primarily lawyers, experts in Old Testament law. So just picture, uh, most of you I think are American citizens and, and would know that uh, once a year when the president gives his State of the Union address, you have not only the president, the vice president, members of the cabinet who come uh, to that presentation, you have members of both houses present, the Senate, the House, and you also have Supreme Court justices who enter. There's no other gathering like it on the annual calendar in American politics. Well, that's, that's a similar gathering that's come. These are the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem, and they are the most powerful religious leaders in Israel. Now, so that's who is prosecuting. Why? Well, Mark tells us very plainly, verse 55 again, they are seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now, they've been seeking to kill him for many, many months now. The opposition to his ministry began early. As one author reminds us, if you go back through the gospel, you will see that they have objected to his claim to have authority to forgive sins. They have objected to his mixing with sinners. Remember, he's the friend of, of tax collectors and prostitutes, and he, he spends time with the marginalized. They have objected to his free attitude toward fasting and his readiness to override their understanding of the proper observance of the Sabbath. One of those stories we encountered all the way back in chapter 3. Do you remember how Jesus had healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day? And the stunning thing to us is though the, the physical evidence of this man's healing and the evidence of Christ's divine miracle working power was before them, what was the thing they were hung up on most? That he had healed on the Sabbath. That he had broken their particular application of God's law. And so they began to quarrel with him. And rather than saying, you know what, maybe we've got some things wrong in our understanding of how you observe and practice the Sabbath. No, they were so intent on protecting their religious box they had built through their years of study and practice and, and their, growth, their developed expertise that, as Mark 3, verse 6 says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Why would you kill the miracle worker in your community? That would be like our present generation suddenly finding not just a cure for coronavirus, but a person who has the power to just lay his hands on sick people, pray over them, and they're healed, restored immediately, even raising some of the thousands who've died from the grave. But we say we don't like his religious practices, so we're going to kill him. Fast forward to this present week of Passover and what we've been working through in, in recent weeks and months in the chapters preceding Mark 14. Remember, it was on Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the clear sign of his messianic kingship. And the crowds sang his praises. And these religious leaders, probably some of the very ones who are assembled in this council in the darkness of this particular night, were not pleased. On Tuesday... Or, sorry, on Monday, he cleansed the temple and disrupted the big business of Passover week. Remember, he not only, he not only created a big stampede, overturning tables and, and putting, setting animals free and, and turning them loose in the temple, but he also pronounced condemnation over what was taking place. Jesus had boldly cried in that place, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And then Mark records, The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. And why did they fear him? Mark goes on to say, Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
They're losing not only the financial market share of big business in the temple precinct, they're losing the religious market share as the crowds are enamored and astonished by his teaching. On Tuesday, he taught in the temple, silencing all the opposition that came against him. Remember that it was the Pharisees and Herodians who came to him, trying to entrap him on the issue of paying taxes to Caesar. And he had answered it not only deftly and skillfully, but even in answering their, their uh, question designed to entrap him, had revealed the, the greed of their own hearts. The Sadducees also tried to ensnare him in a scenario regarding multiple marriages and the resurrection and whose wife would this woman be if she had seven husbands in this lifetime. And again, Jesus answered in such a way that he silences these experts. One of the scribes had asked him that same day, which is the greatest commandment? And he had gone on to say, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love others as you already love yourself. And he wed those two commands in one, saying, in essence, you cannot have love for God without love for other people. And not only answered powerfully and skillfully, but then went on to issue a warning Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seat in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. All through this week, he has been preaching and teaching and confronting and explaining in such a way that he's unmasking the hypocrisy of these self-righteous ones. And on Wednesday... Two days before the Passover, as Mark records, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So this purpose for prosecuting Jesus has been in the works for a long time. And now with the help of Judas, they have arrested him. They brought him to trial in order to put him to death because this Jesus, this Jesus is a threat to their lives. Do you ever feel like the Jesus of the Bible threatens the way you live? You say, what? Yeah, I'm asking seriously. Many of us are okay with a Jesus who fits into our lifestyle. We want to make a little slot for him. That's my Jesus slot. But I'm going to keep all my other slots. If we were thinking in terms of a calendar, some of you say, I'm happy to give Jesus one day, but the other six are mine. See, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus doesn't want to be Lord and King just of Sunday. He wants to be Lord and King over every day. We're okay with a Jesus who enhances our lifestyle. We would never call him a lucky charm, a talisman, but functionally, that's how we treat him. Jesus, would you, would you make my life better today? And our prayers are often a reflection of that kind of thinking. We just want enhancement Jesus. Or we're fine with a Jesus who approves of us just as we are. Jesus, I've been working long and hard to find out who I am and to, and to kind of grow this personality and, and lifestyle that I enjoy. I don't really want you to mess with it. I do want you around, but just can, can you just approve of me for who I am and where I am? So Jesus, don't ask me to change too much. See, Jesus is a threat to that kind of thinking. You know why? Because he's king. He entered our world, not just claiming to be the son of God, but demonstrating who the son of God is and, and what kinds of things he does. He came calling us to follow him. And it's not just an invitation like, take it or leave it. If you want to, I'm here. It's available. No, it, it's a call that he issued to all the nations in every generation. It's a call that he's extended even here through our study of Mark, and he extends it on, on this day. Jesus says, follow me. And, and he's not actually calling you to a life of comfort and ease. It's a life that he characterizes with phrases like these. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. But it is the life that leads to blessing. It is the life that, that, that is lived out under his care, under his protection. There is no other king like Jesus. And as he does to the Sanhedrin, he's been doing it for weeks and months now, 
through his preaching, through his lifestyle, through his ministry in their midst. Jesus is bringing them to a crossroads of decision and he brings each of us to that same crossroads of decision. Will we abandon even some of our lifelong commitments and follow him? Or will we hold on to those things? And specifically with this council, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, it meant releasing their long-held religious beliefs and commitments. And it may mean that for you today. How will they justify the death sentence? Well, first of all, they're going to try legal testimony. Verse 55. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. The, the, the terminology, the legal terminology of, of a testimony such as this refers to verbal evidence of witnesses, plural. It goes back to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 specifically. God gave Moses this law governing situations just like this. And there God said, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now look at what Mark says next. But they found none. What's going on here? Well, he explains, verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Do you know that's actually the, the, the opposite of what Jesus really said? If you go back into the gospel record and read what Jesus actually said about destruction of the temple, he actually said to his hearers, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And in John's gospel, he actually adds the clarifying statement. So there's no question as to what Jesus meant by that. John writes, he was speaking about the temple of his body. So they had just said, he, he, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple, and they're talking about the physical structure in Jerusalem, that one made with hands, and in three days I will build another. Do you know the real tragedy of this particular testimony is not simply that they completely twisted what Jesus said, but they completely missed the power and salvation of what he had originally said. Jesus is the only temple who holds and offers salvation to Jew and Gentile. The Jews weren't the only ones who had sacred structures uh, erected in order that worshipers could come and, and meet with the gods. But, it, but specifically, in, in this context of Christ's ministry, he was referring to the temple of his body. And here he is standing in this council being accused of saying something he didn't really say, but what he actually said was, in, was indicating that he is the temple where salvation is found. He himself will be destroyed and three days later he will raise himself from the dead as a sign of salvation and justification. But here these people have put their faith in an earthly temple and in all of its practices. Just a couple of days before he entered that temple wholly condemned what was taking place, created a big stampede, tables overturned, money probably scattered all over, people also scattered. They're watching their world collapse in on itself, and Jesus is actually in kindness and mercy trying to show them the emptiness of faith in a temple. They missed it. In verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So their Strategy of finding legal testimony? Mark it off the list. It ain't working. Well, maybe they can figure out a way for him to incriminate himself. Well, look at the text again. Verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. You know, on the micro level, that is the, the immediate circumstance of this conversation, and, and now the high priest, Caiaphas, saying to him, have you no answer? There's no need for Jesus to answer. It's clearly testimony that is inaccurate and full of contradictions. And if you've ever been in a conversation like that, I mean, where do you even start? Because if you try to address this particular inaccuracy, inaccuracy, it could open the door for a contradictory testimony that's been raised against you to somehow you, you in their estimation, confirm that that's true. A backdoor confirmation. 
Jesus just remains silent. There's no need to. It's evident to everyone that this is not a Deuteronomy 19.15 kind of court of law where at least two, if not three or more witnesses are lining up, their testimonies are consistent, and they can be confirmed. The evidence is clear. Now, that's the micro level. What's happening on the macro level? What's the big picture? Well, what's happening here is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. One of the most beautiful passages that speaks of Messiah and His work is found in Isaiah 53, verse 7. And there the Scriptures tell us that Messiah was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Do you know the bigger reason that Jesus did not open His mouth at that particular moment? is that He's exactly where He needs to be. He is on the path to the cross at Calvary. He intends to offer Himself as the once-for-all sacrifice so that sinners, both the self-righteous ones like this council and Caiaphas, and the unrighteous, like the publicans and prostitutes that He's spent time with in the past three years, would all be brought to salvation. He's keeping His mouth closed for the sake of the very ones who condemn Him in this moment. He's keeping his mouth closed for you. What a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing that was rude in my place, condemned he stood. We all should be thankful that Jesus didn't open his mouth. Not at this point. And not at other critical points in this whole trial and ultimately crucifixion. He died for you and for me, for Caiaphas and the council. They're not going to find a way for him to incriminate himself. So that presses them to the third option. Now, it's cloaked under uh, another form here, but rejection, make no mistake, rejection and redefinition is, is actually what's underway here. Again, the high priest asked him, look at the next verse. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And that's just a Jewish way of saying the Son of God. They would never speak his name publicly and openly, so they would find other ways to, to uh, speak of God. The Son of the Blessed. Now, do you remember how Mark began his gospel? Go back to Mark 1 and look at verse 1 just briefly. I wanna, we're, we're tying some things together, and we've taken a number of breaks along the way. Uh, so many, many months ago when we began the study in the gospel of Mark, we were right here, and Mark said this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can insert actually the definite article, Jesus the Christ, because remember, Christ is not his last name, it's a title. And that's just the, the Greek expression for the Hebrew Old Testament concept of Messiah. So we could also read this, Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, or God's anointed one, the Son of God. The second time that the term Christ occurs is in Mark uh, 8, verse 29, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, remember, gives that glorious confession. You are the Christ. That is, you are the anointed one, the uniquely chosen one of God who's entered the world for the salvation of the nations. In Mark's account, there's only one other place, in addition to these two, where the Christ appears prior to this, this conversation that we're in with Caiaphas at the moment. And that is Mark 12, 35 and that was just a couple of days before this where Jesus is uh, answering the, the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, all who come to him and, and teaching in the temple. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And he puts him in a little conundrum there. But now... Caiaphas asks him directly, are you the Christ? And gloriously and clearly, Jesus says, I am. This is one of those passages that you should just file away because I, I hear this and it just amazes me every time it occurs that some will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Curious, because if he's not claiming that here, what unfolds after this means that there was a gross misunderstanding. Jewish leaders don't call for the death of someone for blasphemy who, who meant something else. But that's another conversation. I am. I am the Messiah. 
I am the Messiah you have read of in the Old Testament. I am the man of sorrows who is acquainted with your grief, come to reclaim sinners ruined by both self-righteousness and unrighteousness. I am the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecies who has come to be pierced for your transgressions, to be crushed for your iniquities, to undergo the deadly chastisement that will bring you peace at my expense and to make my grave with the wicked. I am the temple who is about to be destroyed on a cross for you as I suffer the wrath of Almighty God for your sins. I am the Christ who will rise three days from now as a sign not only of my divine power and authority, but of your salvation and justification. I am the Messiah. But now Jesus intensifies the truth of this reply by joining two Old Testament prophecies into one powerful statement that actually is an indictment against Caiaphas and the council. Look at the next phrase with me, if you will, please. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Again, another way of saying the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. You say, what two, what two passages did he just bring together? Psalm 110.1, you can look this up. Again, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. A messianic promise. And then Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 specifically, where the prophet Daniel is given a vision in the night. And he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus brings those two passages together. It, it, acknowledging that the, the right, that position of authority and, and power, uh, the right hand of God has been given to him, and the title or designation as the Son of Man is his exclusively, and the privileges and responsibilities that come with all of that means that one day Jesus will not be the one on trial, but Caiaphas and the council and all the peoples of every age will stand before him as judge. One author writes of this scene that the high priest and the Sanhedrin as religious representatives of the people had the responsibility to recognize the Messiah. But that's not what they've done, is it? They have rejected him. Can you imagine the effect in Israel if the powerful leaders of this council had repented of their self-righteousness and error and truly followed Christ? That wasn't going to happen in part because the cross had to happen. I think of some of the leaders of powerful religious, influential religious groups in our world today, what would happen if some of them would, would truly acknowledge that the Christ of the Old and the New Testaments is everything he has revealed himself to be, has done everything that he has declared done and requires everything of us that he requires. What would happen if they would stand up and say, we have been wrong, we have preached and taught and, and published error we are on a pathway to destruction, and we call all those who sit in our voice to follow Jesus with us. That'd be a moment, wouldn't it? Rejection and redefinition. That's ultimately what they have to do to bring us condemnation. Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Isn't that amazing? What is blasphemy? Blasphemy by definition, means to dishonor God by diminishing His majesty. Is that what Jesus just did? Did He diminish the majesty of God on high by saying, I am the Christ? Oh, He actually magnified, elevated the majesty of God because He spoke truth. He has not diminished the majesty of God. What He has actually done is to expose and diminish the emptiness of of their self-righteousness and false faith. He's actually bringing them down if they will acknowledge the truth. Bringing Caiaphas off of his high pedestal. Bringing the council down to earth, so to speak, because they had developed this enormous religious ego. And Caiaphas asks, what is your decision? 
and they all condemned him as deserving death. That is, they actually pronounced his guilt and the, the punitive sentence going with it. Is this not a stunning moment? Do you understand now I would say they not only reject Jesus, but they redefine both his message and his person? And that's what many individuals and religious groups in the world do. Oh, Jesus was a great prophet, but he wasn't really God. Oh, Jesus is a significant religious leader, and we should, you know, we should follow his example. But faith in his bloody sacrifice? Jesus was a great man, but he was just a man. Just a man as we are. Achieved really great things, but you know what? If you work hard, you could be like Jesus one day too. Are you redefining Jesus, or are you submitting yourself to this word and to all the truth that God has revealed about himself, about the Christ, about the Spirit. Verse 65 says, Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Do you know that it's, I won't take a lot of time to develop this, but there, there, was, a, there was a collective group response right now, but there are many who many scholars and, and such who posit that part of the reason they're doing this is to prove to one another that, yeah, I'm one of you. I'm condemning Jesus, and I want to make sure you know that I, I'm not in agreement with anything he said, because after all, in self-righteous religion, you always have to guard your reputation with others, don't you? But from Christ's perspective, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 6, where the words of Messiah are recorded, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He expected it, planned for it, allowed it to happen because it was all part of the big plan. And that big plan was necessary for your salvation and mine. Years ago when I was youth pastoring, we took our teens to Manitoba to serve in a children's camp every summer. And it was the highlight of the year for us. And we would spend months getting ready for that and all kinds of requirements that we asked our teens to fulfill before they went and memorizing chapters of, of James and, and participating in ministry at our church and raising funds and all kinds of things that they had to do to be there. Uh, but we loved the setting. We loved the program. We loved even the food. We loved the fun games and activities that we planned. But most of all, it was the children that kept us coming back year after year. We helped run a week of junior camp, and every year we played a version of hide-and-seek that we called Counselor Hunt. And as you would figure, the counselors would scatter out across the camp, and it was a small camp, and we're talking like a, you know, a dozen cabins, half of which were for girls and half of which were for the boys, and then one main lodge, a big Quonset hut. Some of you can visualize something like this. And it was set on a, just a little slope of a hill that led down to this beautiful lake, so there was always a lot of fishing and uh, it's where I really began to appreciate uh, fishing for northern pike, as some of you would know it, and that's a, that's a really good fish to eat, too. Uh, but we had, we had great times there. And this counselor hunt, though, would, would not only include a time where the campers would try to find the counselors, but we'd always flip it and allow the campers to go out and hide. And I'll, I'll never forget, and Kristen was with me, too, and she has a much sharper memory than I, but... Uh, there was one sweet, lovable junior camper, I think his name was Johnny, uh, and we just, I mean, he, he was portly, to put it politely, uh, and just, I mean, just huggable, lovable, uh, you just always enjoy being around Johnny. Well, during the counselor hunt portion of it, Chris and I had gone out and hidden in an area, and we had we'd actually pulled a lot of the thick, tall grass on the bank of that lake over us, and I mean, it was hard to see us. And uh, Johnny happened to be standing there when the whistle blew, signaling that that particular portion of the game was over. And, and I just, he was close enough where I actually reached out from my hiding place in the grass and grabbed his ankle. And of course, that scared him. And, you know, he, you know, squealed and giggled with delight. And we went back. Well, flip the script. And so now the campers go out and hide. And, and we went back to that same little uh, path along the lake. And guess where Johnny was? But here's what's memorable about Johnny. Uh, he was attired in a, essentially a turquoise-colored shirt and shorts. I don't know if it was a matching ensemble, but it was bright. You know, from here to here, it was bright. 
And he essentially lay down in the same spot where Chris and I had been hiding earlier, but rather than burrowing into the deep grass, he had grabbed about three handfuls of that tall grass and draped it, not over the shirt, not over the shorts, over his face. <laughs> and there he was lying just as still as any eight-year-old ever lay. I mean, just almost like radiant in the evening sunlight, face covered, fully exposed. And we waited for a moment or so and then, you know, grabbed him and more squeals and, and uh, Johnny had been found. That was a sweet naivete of a child trying to hide what was starkly obvious. But I think how often we, people of all ages, play a similar game of hide and seek with God. And instead of covering our faces with a handful of grass, we try to hide the true nature of our souls with a few stalks of religiosity. The clumps of grass that this council and Caiaphas had draped over their souls that night was a spiritual posturing of religious zeal tied to Israel's history, but so perverted by that point that they actually accused the Christ of blasphemy. But in their little group at that moment, they all affirmed one another. We are good. We are good. Yes, we are righteous. We have stood for truth, stood for the system. It's easy for us to see that foolish, naive attempt to camouflage the soul, but many of us try to drape our souls with similar religious zeal, don't we? We may not cry blasphemy against the Christ. Sometimes we're a little more polite, but we still scoff at the claims of Jesus scoff at the statements of his followers, ignore the word as it has been revealed to us, and we esteem ourselves to be wiser in knowledge and more skillful even in religious understanding than Jesus himself. But if we're honest, all the while, we fear that the God who created us would find us as we are, where we are for who we are. And in many ways, we live our lives like Johnny, fully exposed before this God, but thinking that a few stalks of religious grass are enough. Do you know the irony of this court scenario? Is that the only one who can rescue them from the bondage, the blindness of this self-righteous system of religion that they've established is standing in their midst and he's about to endure their unjust condemnation and go to the cross and shed his blood and he will purchase some of them out of this night of sin. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. But within a few hours of this moment, we can also sing the truth of that, that great hymn. But he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. This is the Savior of the self-righteous as well as the unrighteous. So as we think it through here, just in conclusion, a couple of thoughts for you. At the beginning of the message, I asked you to just pray, and then throughout the message, something like this. Lord God, am I living in the reality of your true gospel, of your truth? Or am I living in a world of, of religious self-righteousness, which really is just a make-believe world? Are you living in some kind of illusion that you're okay with God, as long as you just kind of live your life and do your thing and don't make too much trouble. And if you felt the Spirit of God bringing weight on your soul, saying, you know what, I'm more like Caiaphas in the council than I really want to admit. Well, hey, here's the good news. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in, in your own form of religious self-righteousness today. You see, just stop it, yeah. Just turn away from it and acknowledge to the Lord, I'm done with that. I'm sorry for that. It's offensive. It belittles Jesus Christ, and I, I don't want anything to do with it. So you, you turn your back on it, and then you just come to God as you are. Stop playing hide-and-seek with him. He already knows. See, he, he knew him before you were born, how, how corrupt you would be. That's why he sent Jesus. You needed a rescuer because you can't self-rescue. And then finally... Rest in Jesus. He's done everything that God required, and it's everything you could not do. Eternal death is the only 
payment God would accept for your sin and mine. Well, you say, I, I, I can never really pay it. Yeah, right. Because when you offend the eternal God, your offense carries with it eternal punishment. But Jesus, the eternal son, died. His payment is eternal. You can rest that what Jesus did is enough. You say, but what about the perfect obedience that God also requires? Because I have to be perfectly righteous under his presence. You're exactly right. Well, that's the other part of the gospel, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the fact that he never broke one of God's laws and he fulfilled everything that God the Father asked him to do. That perfect record of righteousness, he gifts you and me with. So if you come in faith, resting in him would be a little way to describe that, then that perfect righteousness is yours. That relieves you the, from the pressure of religious posturing, like Caiaphas and the council were practicing every day of their lives. Your obedience matters, just not to improve your standing with God. Your obedience is an expression of your love for him. So love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. Believe the truth, live the truth. Let's pray together. God in heaven, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive our efforts to somehow appease you in your wrath for our sins, particularly because Jesus did what was required and necessary. Forgive us for our self-righteous posturing. It's all about show. Or forgive us for the religious commitments we make but really are not submitted to Christ. How we thank you for this Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that even when we were dead in our self-righteousness, you died for us. As you think through the text, keeping your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just maintaining a spirit of prayer for a moment. Is there something that the Lord has impressed on your heart today? Maybe for you, it's just a matter of surrendering all that you are to him. Could be the first time. Maybe you've done it before, but you've just gotten away from it. But instead of fitting Jesus into your world, why don't don't you, by faith, humble yourself and say, Lord Jesus, take me as I am. Take me into your world. Do with me as you will. I'm so weary of the religious posturing and practice and all all that stuff. It's just exhausted me. Oh, Jesus says to you, come, you who are weary, burdened heavily, I'll give you rest. Will you just come to him? Take that step. Father, would you take your word and seal it to our hearts, how we praise you for this mighty Savior. We give you thanks for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.